This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think a lot of readers come to the question of violence because they're challenged by or disturbed by something, whether it be in the New Testament uh, or passages in the Old Testament, like the book of Joshua and the command to destroy the Canaanites and leave nothing alive that breathes. So, so I think those are the kind of standard starting points. And, and I definitely resonate with those concerns and questions and have posed them myself and had them posed to me in the classroom. So it's definitely something I'm familiar with and have thought a lot about. But at the same time, I felt like there was a perspective and a concern and anxiety around the question of violence that was driven by the text itself and by the ancient biblical writers that needed to be part of that conversation. And so to get to your question of why I started from that place instead of the what I would call the top-down question of what do we do as readers about violence in the Bible is because I wanted, you know, it's perhaps a Protestant conviction that we need to like hear the text as much as we can on its own terms. And for enabled to be able to do that, there needs to be some real other that you're dialoguing with. And so I wanted to hear and as much as possible give voice to the text's own construals of and representations of the problem of violence that it recognizes so that it was more of a two-way challenge. So the the Bible has its questions to ask us, to pose us about our violence, even though we also have questions about what to do about violence in Scripture. Who are you? Uh, Matt Lynch, and I am at Regent College in Vancouver, where I just started this year, uh, this autumn, and I'm assistant professor of Old Testament here. And what else do you want to know about me? Uh, what was the name of that book you just published with Cambridge? Yes, um, this this is my um, book on what what did it, what is the title of it? Portraying violence in the Hebrew Bible. And a literary cultural perspective. So I forget the subtitle right now. Um, and so, and I forgot the name of the book because I keep on calling it in my mind the Grammar of Violence book. Um, oh yeah, well it's it's portraying violence in the Hebrew Bible, but I had originally posed the proposed the title Grammars of Violence in the Hebrew Bible, but of course issues of searchability usually dominate when it comes to book titles. So Cambridge nixed that title and wanted me to go with something more keyword rich. <laughs> keyword rich. And um, well, it's a metaphor grammar, right? The idea that uh, a grammar is yeah. how different uh, how different pieces function within a system. So yeah, yeah. why go for that metaphor of grammar of violence rather than just like, hey, here are the instances of violence, here are the principles behind them, and that's how it works. Yeah, I, th- I think grammar for me connoted a little bit better the idea of a, a certain 
kind of patterns and rules of representation that carried a whole set of attendant linguistic expressions, metaphors, and 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 particular structures that were built into those representations. So, yeah, grammar is a metaphor. I'm not talking about you know the the, the specific um, you know grammatical rules underlying the Hebrew in passages where violence occurs. Um, but, uh, but I felt like it, it got at the idea that, um, you know, when violence was represented in the Bible, it often followed a kind of cultural script that, that where, um, that representation was, was somewhat expected by listeners, you know, that if, if you talk about the, um, violence being shed, you're going to talk about its outcry. And if you could talk about the outcry related to violence, you're going to talk about the actors who are going to become involved in response to that outcry. So it it sets in motion this sort of set of cultural expectations and just in a similar way that that grammar is not an inflexible thing in language, but it includes a set of expectations that enable communication. And just like in... Um literature moving from grammar to literature there are kind of conventions and figures of speech so Mm -hmm. you note that things like uh tumult uh Mm -hmm. these these there's these very particular words that keep showing up in episodes of violence right and so why why is that even significant so so what that it says tumult or chaos and violence yeah so it's once you begin to recognize, for instance, the occurrence of certain themes and ideas and metaphors and expressions, you you can begin to group those together and step back and ask bigger questions about what that says about how biblical writers uh, thought about rep- and and construed violence as a problem, and and so, you know, on its own, the fact that violence is related to tumult might not be terribly interesting, but once you begin to kind of set that in um, it, its its literary context where you recognize that that had to do with a particular disruption in creation and then connecting it to other passages where violence seems to affect and directly uh, impact the, the physical world, you can be, begin to see that biblical writers saw violence as an ecological problem or as a, a moral problem related to to pride and deceit uh, for instance so so i think it's it's the kind of panning out that that enables you to do then as you as you recognize patterns to then think about what those patterns tell you about um tendencies and representation of biblical writers um would it help at all uh, to think about the um, maybe the way that American film portrays violence mm-hmm. as one grammar of violence, and uh, like if there were a po- popular level book, mm. uh, can you imagine comparing those two grammars of violence? Yeah, I think um, it it's it's tough to generalize too much on like the modern conception of violence versus. Mm-hmm the biblical conception. Uh, so I could, I could pray maybe better speak to tendencies. Um, I think, I, th- I think that, that by and large, the way that we represent violence today in film and so on is, is highly psychological in nature. 
um, related to kind of personal narratives around, you know, um, things that the childhood trauma or things like that. Um, and also there, there are the kind of larger social structural conceptions of violence that are, are very prevalent as well. And, and part of the popular conversation at the moment with policing and so on. Um, but you can notice as you set that as alongside biblical representations, maybe some missing pieces that are present in scripture and therefore, mm. um, ripe for consideration in terms of those those differences. So that ecological conception that I just mentioned or purity conceptions. So we don't really have the kind of same I well maybe in 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 some respects we do, but not the same conception that of violence sort of leaving a, a stain that needs to be dealt with mm-hmm. um, even after its judicial reckoning. Um we we might we might have other ways of expressing that, uh, but I think that's a kind of dominant biblical conception that uh, allows the text then to pose interesting questions to us. Uh, I want to come back to both of those the, the ecology and the the purity issues, mm-hmm. um, but I also um, wonder. I'm, I'm just thinking of the average person in the church. If mm-hmm. you just say, "Well, how does the Bible portray violence?" I would assume, at least the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that a lot of people would say, well, it's positive, right? Like God mm. sent them to war. He gave them victory. Um, yeah. Almost like, you know, turning these into hero sagas of some sort or like, mm. you know, the the mighty men of stories. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. It, it, is there any truth to that or is that a distorted lens? Yeah, I think part, part of the challenge is the, the word violence itself. So when if we use a word like violence, typically it has some kind of negative connotation. Um, uh, I, I suppose there are some for whom violence is um, <laughs> somehow positive. But, it, but I think when we use a term like violence as opposed to war or coercion or something, something of that mm. sort, it, it has negative a negative charge to it. And so that's, it's similar in scripture in the sense that, for instance, Israel's campaign against the Canaanites doesn't contain within it the language, the morally charged language of violence and bloodshed. So Israel did not conceptualize those events in terms of shedding the blood of the Canaanites, because once you do that, there's, there are all kinds of attendant moral problems and judicial problems. So, so to say that Israel went in and shed the blood of the Canaanites, an expression that's never used, would be to morally denounce that act. And and the Bible doesn't do that. So, in cases where it is representing something that we as readers see as violent, um, we have to always ask, how do they think about it? So, that's one of those cases. Joshua is one of those cases where I see it more as one of those texts where we have the problem with scripture that it isn't necessarily recognizing in the same way that we do. Um, that's a separate problem and one that I'm thinking about a lot and, and wrestling with myself. Um, but it's, it's different than what I'm doing in this book. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a problem for all of us who teach the Old Testament. When mm-hmm. we get to Joshua, I, I think every student who reads it 
um, yeah. notices that it, it doesn't actually even describe any of the killing actually of yeah. Aachen, uh, the one who steals the, um, yeah. steals the stuff from Jericho. But, yeah. um, it's, it's actually unclear who, who is doing the killing there. Is it God? Yeah. Is it the Israelites? Yeah. Um, and, and there's not much moral discussion. And like you noted, the, the, the language mm-hmm. of bloodshed is not there. Um, mm-hmm. And there's not any indictment there either. Like, yeah. what did these people do that were so wrong? Yeah, you get you get that from other books. And that's, that's one of the problems with uh, certain approaches to reading Joshua is people will have to import the sins of the Canaanites from other places. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's that's totally illegitimate, but it is interesting that Joshua doesn't focus on these Canaanites are sacrificing their children left, right, and center, and therefore needed to be ousted, um, or that they were uh, highly idolatrous or immoral in other ways. Uh, but but rather, it, it just takes as a given that they needed to be killed or displaced. And and that creates a real issue uh, for us as readers then. So so yeah, I mean, and, and this is part of what I was trying to do in the book is notice where the Bible was marking something as problematically violent mm. and then focusing on those texts and asking how they represent this problem to be part of the wider conversation. So if I hear you correctly, if I can just reword what you've said mm-hmm. here, um, if the biblical authors saw the um the invasion into the land of Canaan and some mm-hmm. of the of the limited harem, you know, this destroy everything mm-hmm. warfare that happens mm-hmm. there, if they saw this as as violence in the problematic sense that it was a moral problem mm-hmm. that has to be dealt with, we would expect certain phrases and certain descriptions to be used there. Yeah. And and I don't reduce it to you know, kind of semantics in terms of, you know, it's not like I need to see the word right. Hamas or um, Shafah Dam to shed blood uh, for it to be considered problematic, but but you would expect certain patterns of representation of th- of those events that signal for us as readers, hey, the biblical writers recognize this as immoral in some mm-hmm. sense, but but they don't for Joshua, and that's why Joshua is such a challenge for for us as readers. Interesting. Um, okay, I want to come back to this issue, the ecological problem, and there, and mm-hmm. I, I realized I. Uh, I didn't get far enough into your book to know whether you were doing this intentionally or not, but hmm. uh, there's kind of two senses of the word ecology there. Ecology hmm. in the sense of it's a system where all the parts are interdependent on the system. And then mm-hmm. there's ecology in the sense of murdering actually does something to the, the mm-hmm. environment, the, the, mm-hmm. the, specifically the dirt beneath their feet, right? Uh, prostituting yeah. their daughters does something to the environment. Um, so, where do you get off? Where, where do you get the right to tell us that there's an environmentalist concern with violence? <laughs> I mean, that's a rad. I think most people hear that and say, "Wait, what?" <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I have warrant for saying that because Scripture itself puts that front and center. So, right from the beginning of of the Old Testament, this the ecological effects. Of violence are are thematized. In, in other words, they're they're explicitly identified as a concern of the text. And, and to me, that's like a a, a place I want to go to. Then is is where is the Bible shining the spotlight, and why? And so you have in in Genesis four when Cain kills Abel, 
it says that his blood was shed upon the land and that the the ground opened its mouth to receive Abel's blood and that it was from that mouth, so to speak, that God heard Abel's blood crying out. So the image itself is already interweaving Abel's blood with the ground so that they almost merge in that scene. Mm. So, so you have the ground slash Abel crying out. That's how God hears about this in the first place, according to the story. And, and then it says, um, when God is spelling out the results of this, he says to Cain, like, now you're cursed from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, and it's going to refuse to yield its produce to you because of what you did. And you might look at that if you have a sort of non-ecological conception of violence and say, why is the ground getting involved in something mm-hmm. between Cain and Abel? Or this is a family issue, or this is a, a, a sort of sin issue between God and Cain, and not it doesn't have anything to do with trees and shrubs. Um, they, they should stay out of it. But, <laughs> but um, you know, Genesis doesn't conceptualize it that way. And I would argue a lot of biblical texts see that the human who's made from, the Adam who's made the, from Ha'adama, the ground, of course they're interconnected. Well, you can hear really, it. Real yeah. quickly, just, just close that circle there. Why, why is Adam yeah. made from Ha'adama? Yeah. So, I mean, in Genesis 2, you have God you know, taking some of the dust from the ground, um, Ha'adama, and, and forming a human and the animals, actually, and breathing life into them. And so, the, Genesis 2 is not just telling us something about the first human. It's telling us about the interconnectedness between humans and the earth. Um, and it wants us to see our deep relationship with our physical environment. Um, and in a, in a way that I think complements nicely Genesis 1's interest in seeing humans as intimately related to our creator, to, to God. So we're an image of God, and then in Genesis 2, an image of the land. It doesn't use that language, but that's the, that's the conceptual idea. So when you get to Genesis 4, we should expect that things between humans are going to impact the land. And that's that's kind of where the text goes. And so Cain's wandering, his alienation from the land is an effect of his sin against the land, which is murdering his brother. So so these so to get back to your question about like what warrant I have for think thinking in terms of an ecology of violence is is that that's where scripture goes in the first place it's it's very first bloodshed story presents things in those terms hmm. and I, <clears throat> excuse me it, it dawns on me as you're saying that that w- when we get to the noah story mm-hmm. again it's dirt made creatures who aren't called dirtlings or whatever but they're dirt mm-hmm. made creatures with the breath of life uh mm-hmm. and um who uh, man's wickedness has spilled over to, to their effect as well. And so, yeah. and God covenants with them, as you point out in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so creatures are kind of connected with humanity's uh, moral turpitude, I guess, uh, all mm-hmm. the way through. So I, I guess there's it, the, the picture you're painting. I'm sorry, Matt, but as you know, a good American, I know you're up in mm. Canada, but yeah. Down here in the Americas, um, <laughs> I'm picking up a note of concern that 
because it's starting to sound like you're saying there's nothing we can do that in God's covenant and God's ecology hmm. won't have some effect on the animals, plants, the dirt beneath our feet in some way and the way that he, yeah. he views his relationship with us. Yeah, I, I would say that that's, that's the case. Now, I can't always draw those those lines of connection in terms of, Drew, if I lie to you as a friend, here's how it's going to affect right. the flowers in my garden. <laughs> you know, it, it's... Lie, posies <laughs> cry. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, like the the communal breakdown between humans is going to have a, a an analogous or related communal breakdown in our broader uh, uh, ecological family, and so I think you know this isn't this isn't something that I expected to find when I was looking at the problem of violence. I wasn't starting starting out saying I want to I want to come at this with like an environmentalist hermeneutic and see what happens. Um, I just noticed that scripture seemed to go there regularly, and and so it it and and I think it derives from a very integrated conception of the world that we see both in Genesis one and Genesis two in both those creation stories. They 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 saw that humans and the land and God were bound together in a, in a strong relationship, and that what happened in Genesis three. And four and six was a it was a real falling out between all those parties, mm-hmm. and and then of course it's going to be a falling out with the land too, um, and and to get to your question about like you know the how that works now I would say that there is you know if we take this biblical worldview seriously, um, there is some kind of ecological impact to the way we treat one another. And I, and I don't just mean that, um, that as we um, pour poisons into the, the, the water stream that it, of course, is going to impact the land, but, but there's, I think they had a, a almost more spiritual conception of the relationship between moral action and the physical world where it affected it in some way. And I can't always identify that, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely related. Hmm. Now, you and I are Christians, mm-hmm. saved by the blood of Jesus. So I wonder if you've ever thought about um, ways, because there's there's an open discussion to how much the New Testament authors portray what happened to Jesus as violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you see any connection between uh, you know the shedding? I mean, one of our sacraments is is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, do you mm-hmm. see this connected to the new covenant at all? Um, I, I yeah, I definitely see that the new covenant is. A, also a new covenant with creation. And so you know, um, I guess like a lot of people, I go to Romans 8 there and think about mm. um, the idea that creation is bound up with the the longings that we as Christians have for our redemption. So we're, we're saved and longing for our salvation, our ultimate salvation, along with the earth as a, as a co-recipient of, of that redemption. And so, just 
just like the um, Genesis 1 to 3 sets up the problem in terms of, uh, a, you know, a social, ecological falling out between humans, God, and creation, I think so too the, the New Testament conceptualizes that new covenant in terms of God reintegrating that which was had fallen out, uh, fallen apart in Genesis 1 mm. to 3. So, yeah, of course, that's going to include uh, the physical world too. Um, I do wonder if that, I mean, I, I think people will hear this and I think they'll say, oh, okay, I had not thought about, and they'll go back to, you know, Leviticus 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's, it's because of the immorality in the land of Canaan that, yeah. that the land is going to vomit them out, right? That there's an mm -hmm. ecological reaction to, um, the, the, the horrible behavior of those people as described mm -hmm. there. Um, but I think most people are still going to be like, yeah, but when can we be violent? When is it okay? When, you know, like, mm. uh, violence has to always be exercised kind of in some way in, in societies, even if that means like restraining somebody who is killing other people or, you know, those mm. extreme mm. circumstances. So like, do you yeah. feel like you have a general take on violence that like a principled take that the biblical authors would be able to say, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the problem of using the term like violence, so kind of kind of come back to my earlier point is that to me that's that's a negatively charged term. Mm -hmm. So you're already talking about illegitimate uses of force, and I think yeah, I'm, I mean I'm not personally a pacifist, and so I do see that there's a place for restraint or or limited, um, you know, what I would call violent action, uh, but at the same time, I, I think even there. Scripture would would give us pause and say there's still there's still a cost to these things, um, you know there's there's maybe still a sort of atoning that needs to happen even for legitimate times of of violence that are you know the lesser of two evils or something like that, um, and and so that that then creates a longing for a time when when creation's made new and where we no longer even learn war and mm. um and the the weapons are are destroyed and so saying that there's maybe a legitimate time for um violence is is not to then see it as a good that's still not hurting creation um so yeah i mean i guess mm. that's where i go with that um, and I, I guess that appropriate use of violence, uh, what, I'm just thinking of the obvious examples that are going to pop up in people's minds. What then do you do with, or, or would you describe the flood as a violent mm. act against all of creation? Yeah, I, I don't. So Genesis doesn't present the flood in terms of violence. In fact, it describes violence as that which led to the flood. Mm -hmm. So so it's humans filling the earth with violence that then caused God in Genesis six to look down at the earth and say, it's ruined. So, so the interesting thing about the Bible's take on the flood is, is that um, the, the ruin, the ruination of creation happened prior to it. And, and so God looked at an already ruined world and said, I'm going to ruin it which is a, a, a real paradox in the text. And I think what he means is, and I, I think I use this metaphor in the story, is of God like a potter who looks down at, at 
that which he's formed and sees that it's got all these holes in it and air bubbles and everything that you can't put into a kiln, right? Like it, the, it's, it's already destroyed. Uh, it's a teardown. And so he returns it back to useful formlessness as the precondition for its recreation. So in a way, the flood was a return of that which was destroyed to a state from which God could recreate it. And I think that's how the story wants us to conceptualize the flood. Now, whether we see it that way and agree with that rendering of of things is a different matter, but I think that's the direction the story wants us to go with what happened in Genesis 6 through 8. So um, it's as if like human violence so ruined creation that the floodwaters above and below it was inevitable that they were going to burst open, hmm. right? So, so, so God, uh, Terence Fretheim describes it as God mediating the consequences of human sin, and I like that language because God's definitely involved, and and Genesis wants us to see God is involved, but it's also the consequences of human violence that bring that about. Hmm. Okay, so that was my at least third time to try and uh, trap you. And uh, I just, I just want to note to everybody who's listening what what is happening here. I, I explicitly threw a what I think most people would conceptualize as a, a violent, a divine violent mm-hmm. act at you. And every single time you you did like this jujitsu move mm. or um, maybe Aikido, where you reverse the energy back on the person. Um, mm. <laughs> and and I, I just want to note the move you're making, which is the reason we're talking to you at the Center for Hebraic Thought and the Biblical Mind, is that you kept yeah. saying. But that's not how the biblical authors are conceptualizing what happened, yeah. right? And so you're kind of yeah. forcing us to choose this day. Yeah. Which conceptualization do you want, yours or yeah. the biblical authors? And I, yeah, and there's got to be a way to reconcile those as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you're not the kind of person who's going to just say, "Well, like you need to get over yourself and your views of violence," right? But there is this initial step that's missing when we ask that question, yes. which is, "Have I taken seriously the way the yeah. biblical authors talk about?" This? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's always my first move when when trying to think through the problem of violence in the Bible, because I I do go there as well in my teaching and, and writing. It's just I didn't mm. in this book because I I wanted to start first with the Bible's own representational framework or frameworks. And and when you do that, I I think it opens up kind of new windows. And and so you can actually see whether you're treating something as a problem that that maybe isn't a problem, uh, or whether you're taking seriously the Bible's own categories as part of the conversation. So there's a way of overwhelming the text with our moral moral questions that that actually silence it. And Hmm. I mean, I mean, if you've, I mean, if you go into a passage like Genesis six or Joshua, with a question of like, why does God commit genocide? Well, you you set the terms of the discussion right there, and there should be no good or satisfactory answer to that question, right? Mm. Like, if it's genocide, then it's utterly unacceptable. But but I think. Maybe we need to frame things differently and, and at least hear the, the taxone categories and terms. Dr. Matt Lynch, thank you very much for your time. Drew, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. 
For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.